Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all the content we put out there into the investment universe. Follow me on Twitter at at Focus Compound. All the information is down below. Uh, it's the best place to get everything that we distribute. If you are going to be at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year, definitely be sure to join us at the Willow Oak Asset Management Reception and Investment Panel Saturday, April 30th, after the meeting from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Um, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We are going to be part of the investment panel with a Q&A. Um, I will be the one asking Jeff and the other managers questions. Should I like, you know, I'm gonna give you like some softball questions. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't favor you. I gotta ask everybody questions. I gotta make sure everyone knowing monologues either. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. But yeah. <laughs> uh, if you wanna be there for that, you could go to willowoakfunds.com and sign up. It's for free. We'd love to meet you in person. Um, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services and you're going to be in Omaha that weekend, uh, Jeff and I will be there April 28th, which is Thursday to May 1st on Sunday. So we're gonna uh, block out basically a long weekend to meet with all potential or prospective investors uh, to learn a little bit more about us. Um, so if you want to meet up uh, in Nebraska, email me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to continue on with our Q&A um, thread that we went over last week. Of course, you could uh, be on the lookout for future Q&As uh, by following me on Twitter, at Focus Compound is the handle. And the first question today comes from somebody that says, thoughts on decline in number of US commercial banks. Will this consolidation make US banks a better business over time, like railroads slash car dealers? Uh, I am not sure that it will. Um, I've talked a little bit about it before, but I'm not as convinced about big economies of scale that you get in banking. So I, I don't know that a lot of the consolidation is really in local markets becoming more consolidated, but just that you have bigger um, across markets, like in terms of if you broke out each county and things like that. So I'm not sure. Some of the things that you mentioned there are more local driven advantages for different industries. So that helps a lot more. So I'm not sure it'll have a very big effect on it. Um, there are some economies of scale, you know. I was gonna say, so I'm surprised. I mean, where does that, I mean, what do you mean you're not convinced that there's economies of scale? Are you referring to I'm not different expenses, sure that operating expenses? Yeah. So as an example, like let's say consolidation in Lyme, I think is way more important than consolidation in banking. Yeah, in terms of how you go over time. Consolidation in Did you see my uh, email car dealers. past week? I think that's very helpful, consolidation in car dealers, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of room for that to uh, draw from a pretty wide area. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm kind of hopeful about that stuff. Um, you know, we didn't see it in COVID, but I think consolidation in, in movie theaters wouldn't have been a bad thing. More spending on each individual theater uh, to drive more revenue and stuff, but having to drive a little bit further to get to theaters in places where they would had too many of them that sort of thing. But again, that's like a local consolidation thing. I think there's been a ton of consolidation nationwide, even in an industry like that, but not a lot of consolidation more locally, um, which is probably what matters more. And I, once COVID started, I thought we were going to get that. But then it turned out that financial conditions were so loose that everyone was able to issue 
convertible debt or actually issue stock in the case of like AMC issued like tons of um, equity and all that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Somebody asks, what are thoughts on Ukraine slash Russia end game? Is there a way for Putin to save face while also conceding to the West question mark along this vein is Jeff thinking about or looking at different slash new industries as a result of the spike in oil slash commodity prices? Um, no, I don't think I am looking at different ones. Um, I already, I kind of said that I thought fossil fuel things looked a little cheap to some extent. And, um, you know, that would be probably the same sort of thing. Um, Buffett bought quite a bit of, um, uh, bought Occidental. Quite, yeah. Occidental. Yeah. Actually, right. As of this recording, could you buy it at around his average price buying it lately? Probably it hasn't moved much. I don't think. No, it was moving while he was buying it. So I mm -hmm. think it's come down. So you're, you know, it, it's a situation where you know Buffett between buying it and the warrants and stuff was very recently buying a lot of a stock, um, and so around the same time he was buying it, and around the same price you could buy it if you wanted to. So that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, I don't think that I have any insight into Russia Ukraine, right? Yeah. General Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this person says, seriously, thoughts on the so-called growth stocks, especially ones that are not profitable, but hold a lot of promises. How would you argue that those are not great compounding candidates? Why do compounding stocks have to be from boring, low innovation industries? Um, well, so to value the stocks for us, or I shouldn't say value it, to know that we're getting a good enough deal, it is very hard to make an investment in what I'd say is an unsettled industry where we don't have some idea of what the sort of paradigm is going to be of how this is going to work, what business model is going to make sense and stuff. So the one that I talk about is I mentioned, I think, that I read um, Losing the Signal, the BlackBerry book, you know, not, not that mm -hmm. long ago. And um, that's a good example that's something that had higher, depending on how you measured and stuff, probably had a higher market share uh, than anyone has had since by certain measures in the U.S., like smart um, phone stuff and things like that, um, and went to almost nothing. But but if you look at uh, within a matter of, you know, um, I think at one point in that book they talk about you probably lose 30% of your customers in the next three or four months is our estimate or something, you know. Um, so that's fairly unsettled that way. Or Buffett talking about there were 2,000 car companies. And um, it went from that to, you know, uh, half a dozen viable ones, not that much later. So that's the part that's hard. Um, they don't necessarily have to be really old industries, but it's difficult to know when you have an Apple instead of a BlackBerry, when you have a Facebook instead of a um, MySpace or whatever it might be. And at what point you understand that difference. Um, Buffett is probably slow into something like that. So he probably realizes that with Apple after other people do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who realized it really early on, that what happened is what, you know, definitely had to happen. So that's the part that's, that's difficult. I don't have something against stocks that grow a lot. Uh, as long as it doesn't really change, as long as the competitive situation is not very, um, 
there's, there's not a lot of change in terms of competitors offering different solutions that could be preferred by other people over time. So that's usually what we're talking about is like the speed of change is more a problem for me. Um, I wouldn't have a problem with something where the growth is high, but um, the uh, entry by others is not high, right? Um, so, you know, ones that we've talked about before, I mean, the FANG type things for a few years are like that, right? There's not really a lot of change with Google's advertising model and stuff a few years back. Um, uh, let's say first five to 10 years, it's public. There, it's a fast-growing company, but it's not rapidly changing that much. A little bit later, maybe things are changing more. But uh, so, so like high amounts of growth aren't necessarily a problem, but a lot of change in terms of the, um, in terms of customer behavior is very difficult, and in terms of competitor entry into the market is very very difficult. Yeah, because I can't judge the durability of them, and if you only know that you're going to have a few years of earnings, then basically it's the same as trying to buy a commodity type stock. So like if people ask about, I know that some people like stocks like this, like Micron or something, I don't have something against it. I just don't know how long uh, scarcity part of the cycle will last. And that's sort of the, with the durability of some of these great compounding businesses is they're great, but I don't, if the industry is changing quickly, I don't know if they'll only be great for a few years. And I need to know if they're going to be number one for the next five years, or the next 50 years. Um, so that, that's the problem that you have. Uh, and I think like Blackberry is a good example of that. Yeah. And I don't want to get confused. I mean, growth is great, right? But we care a lot about the competitive landscape. If that growth is attracting irrational competitors, what does that look like? What's the customer behavioral situation, stuff like that. I mean, a lot of the companies that we own that we feel like the competitive landscape is insulated from a lot of outside, you know, actors and stuff like that. If they started growing 20% a year, we'd we'd love it. Right. In a lot of situations. But, um, I just think it's, there's a difference. I mean, when you talk about like analyzing settled industries versus newer or more innovative, where, I mean, competition is knocking at your door every single day. Yeah, I think I mentioned that I did look very seriously at uh, Netflix at one time and decided just wasn't the kind of stock that we we're going to write up for single diligence or something like that. But at that time, it looked uh, cheap enough and settled enough at that point that I was interested. Uh, I w personally, I would have definitely considered it. And it wasn't a cheap price necessarily, but I felt that at that point, which now we're going back... Uh, we just looked at eight eight, years. so eight years or something like that. Um, I did think that probably there was a price at which you could figure it out and stuff because I felt that the durability was going to be there. And that's probably at a point where Netflix is not reporting earnings. Um, you can see some stuff about cash flow generation stuff that you can see the future and what it would be. And you can see it's a streaming business, you know, that you're not just looking at DVD business there and everything. Um, but that's probably about it at that point. Um and I still think that that's fairly settled. I don't think we're going to see a lot of surprises in that industry. So I've said like, you know, look, the ones that we know will have the scale is like probably Netflix, Disney, and uh, HBO. After that, we know who's going to try and stuff. We mm -hmm. don't really know if they're going to get up to that scale. I don't think we're going to be surprised and see that there's 15 streamers that are all 
at the scale that you need to be to make a lot of money and they've all divided the industry up among themselves or something's going to come out and take a lot of subscribers from, from Disney Plus and uh, HBO or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Next question. What's your guys' view on staffing and employment industry? Wouldn't you consider it similar to ad agencies? High return on equity, GDP growth, consolidated? Question yeah. mark. Uh, that's a great question. I've looked at them sometimes. I've never found in the financial results that that's true. They always screen well. They always yeah. look very high margin. I mean, it's cost plus uh, business, right? Low capital intensity. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe ones that are. And then you see a recession come and the return equity, everything just falls off a cliff. Yeah. Um, very cyclical in that regard. Yeah. So I don't know. I've definitely looked and I've definitely thought that that would be the case, but I haven't seen that backed up enough in the financial results as compared to advertising agencies, to be honest. Yeah. But I agree that it is def that in the long run, you'd think it would have GDP type growth. It definitely has high returns on equity. There's very little capital involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all attractive stuff. But um, I guess the variability has seemed higher than I thought it would be. Who is better at ping pong? Uh, probably you, because I've been I mean, ping pong player. I don't play ping pong. Yeah, I uh, can't remember when I've played ping pong. Who is better at beer pong? Uh, probably you, because I definitely <laughs> have never done that. Um, describe his research process. Um, he said order, sources, valuation from initial thought to buying. Public filings, SEC filings, industry reports. Anything you could learn about the customers. Mm-hmm. I would say a lot. I mean, I read the public filing completely pretty early in the process. Mm-hmm. So if I have any interest at all, I'm going to read um, the most recent 10K. I mean, usually I read the most recent 10K, 10Q, and a uh, proxy statement. Um, and I mark those up. And then I go from there. But that's sort of where I get an idea of what sort of things to dig into more. And then it gets can be a lot more detailed depending on what questions I still have or s- suspicions I have about things and whatever. It sort of generates a lot of leads of what should I look more into, you know, that kind of thing. And the best thing you could do, Harvey, as well, is read the most recent 10K and the f- oldest 10K you could find. Yeah, that's actually a very good thing that I've done before and actually one that I would recommend to people. Um, the most recent one and the oldest, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, he, this other person asked, he said, probably too late here, but thoughts on alternative asset managers? Hmm. Uh, no, I do not have thoughts. You? No. Um, when calculating free cash flow, do you take out distributions to non-controlling interest? Um, well, yes. Um, okay. So this is a good question. So that would be in a, a situation like, um, where we have a situation like that, uh, Flanagan's. Flanagan's would have that situation. So it's consolidating stuff and you're seeing a potential that you have cash flow that's higher, reported cash flow that's higher than um, the cash flow which would be um, attributable to the owners of that business. Um, So sort of like how you see um, on the balance sheet, you have equity, total equity, and equity of the owners of the the, um, entity that they're talking about. So sometimes it would be bigger um and then you always use like it's automatically calculating for you the book value and stuff like that of the um 
entity that you're looking at. So it's taking out the minority stuff that you're seeing. Um, yeah, I, I would. Uh, but exactly how you adjust for that is going to depend on the situation of the company. Um, it's kind of like when we talk about NACA or something. Flanagan's is a good example. NACA is a good example. Look at companies like that because each of them have their own complicated accounting thing and you have to figure out what actually makes sense. What do you as owner, what do you really get here? And uh, what don't you? Uh, what isn't your responsibility to? So in the case of NACA, they're not consolidating things because the customer basically is putting up all the capital for it. And so that's that's why it's not consolidated. Um, cash flow things, What's what you're always wondering is what's actually available to pay down debt, uh, dividends, buybacks, whatever, for you as the owner of this stock. Next question, how do you keep curious? And then he asks about... How do you plan your reading and rest of your day? Do you have any structure or checklist when thinking about a company? So I guess for the second half of those questions, um, listen to our prior podcast, which will yeah. be already uploaded. But good question. How do you keep curious? I don't think do I you enjoy this? Do I enjoy or is this it? just so much of a habit at this point in your life? I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, what don't I enjoy? Um, sometimes do I have any issue with that? Uh, I, I mean, you just have to accept at times that you're not going to find ideas, I guess is part of it. So, so there's no point in enforcing it. So that's the only thing that I guess you could say, uh, I might not enjoy is that sometimes I'm looking at something that I know is not something that I'm going to buy today. And you're kind of fooling yourself into thinking it's something that I consider today, right? So that that can just be a, if you're going to get down or whatever, it's just generally for me, prices are pervasively too high. You know, if that happens for a while, then sometimes it's just that you can look at a lot of great companies and things, but they're not things I'm going to buy. I, you know, ultimately I know I'm not going to buy them right now, but you keep doing it. Eventually prices will change in the future, but that's the toughest part of it, I'd say. That's the biggest threat to staying curious about individual stocks right now is knowing with some things, you know, they'll just be entire industries and things that at whatever point are just, they're just expensive enough that I know I'm not going to buy them. So you end up going through a list of 10 stocks and every one of them is just, yeah, this is fine, but it's just not even close to a price that we're going to pay. So what do you like about investing? Is it, I mean, is it entirely the money aspect of it? No. Not really into the money aspect of it. Uh, it just is an intellectual thing to do. Yeah, you know? that's usually what I say. Yeah, if someone asks, if someone I, asks. I always think it's more like the intellectual pursuit of the game. But it's just a purely intellectual thing, so it, it's interesting that way. It's it's very complex. So you know, um, I'm sure I could have some interest in chess or poker or whatever, but they're fairly simple um, things in terms of they can be reduced somewhat to models that are pretty simple and then it's just a lot of memorization of things and um and, and sort of playing out rote strategies and things like that investing isn't quite that simple um things change enough that you can't just go and apply just the ben graham thing from this decade or the warren buffett thing from this there's more to it than that and so it does have um it does present a greater challenge that way um but it is purely intellectual in the sense that like I mean, we have to raise money and things like that, but for the most part, it's based on just the 
performance that you have, which is basically over a long enough period of time based on um, the results that you get are based on the decisions that you make with the opportunities that you had in front of you, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't involve a lot of other things in terms of, uh, you can kind of analyze the outcome. There is sort of the luck thing and we talked about resulting and all that kind of stuff. But compared to most professions and things, there's less of that. It is easier to analyze sort of whether your um, conclusions were right or not. So including sometimes, um, I mean, sometimes you, you make a bunch of money and stuff, even though you look back on it and say, no, that conclusion wasn't right and everything. You can at least, you know, analyze it that way. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Mm-hmm. Jeff seemed very open in the beginning of your podcast to talking about current holdings. Clearly that has changed. Can you explain the reasoning behind this? Yeah. Um, I think, Hmm. I would say we have not been open about discussing current holdings of the fund. So I don't remember when the podcast started and how long after it, we had the fund, but I would say that that's the change. Um, and that's largely based on the kinds of stocks that we buy and, uh, that we would create, you know, competition for buying them basically. Um, that that's really it. It's also harder to do that all in public as well, buying and stuff like that. Um, but you're right. I mean, sometimes we may want to buy the company in the future and, if we talk about it and it gets bid up or something like that, or if we're trying to actively buy stock, that's, uh, there's really no upside, I think, to talking about current holdings publicly. I, yeah. I mean, I think I say, you know, sometimes from, you'll hear me say from time to time, if you listen to podcasts all the time, you know, which is owned in accounts I manage or whatever. Um, so I think we said that every time we talk about Virtue Motors, right? Or, um, uh, over the counter markets we've probably mentioned. So those are examples. Whereas there's other things where I may have said we don't own it. Um, uh, we've mentioned frost many times, Omnicom don't own those. We've never said that we own them. So although people can guess that just by their size and stuff like that. Um, but so those would be things to manage accounts though, not in the fund. So I would say the fund is where I would be more reluctant to say things because with the manager accounts, there's a large enough group of people who are able to see what they own all the time. So it's a little bit different story. That's more out in the public domain. There's no way we could be totally secretive about manager accounts, but we could be to a point uh, for a certain amount of time. We could be with a fund. It's like, yes, there'll be the 13 F with whatever Buffett owns and you'll be able to see it, but you won't normally see it as quickly as you do with Occidental, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So yes, we're very not public about it with the, fun definitely and i guess i should just state the obvious i mean we do have investors that pay us fees for um our That's investment activities mm -hmm. and i guess for their benefit if we're publicly talking about everything that they own why would they pay us those fees i guess you could say so i mean i think sometimes i'm not saying that this is where that question was derived from but people may forget we are a business and we do do the podcast and we give a lot of free information, but it's not entirely altruistic because we do benefit from it, whether it's raising capital or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's actually what makes us a great relationship with our viewers. I think is that we 
like to give out information and it comes back to us as well. Um, a, because it's fun, B, because we could connect with individuals and C, because it benefits our business. And if you get to listen and you don't even have skin in the game with us and maybe you enjoy listening to us, then, you know, I guess everybody's happy. There's sometimes I'll see comments on um, things where people say, why do they need to raise capital or why do they need to manage other people's money if they're not um, financially independent? And I think a lot of people say that because I guess Munger has said it or Buffett has said it like with the whole no fee thing. Well, most, I mean, I think we can, but we're business, but it's not a secret that most of the money that we manage doesn't have a management fee. And that's, that's the one thing too, that is like, I'm like, I mean, mostly are paid just on performance performance. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there are different things that we make money off of, but, the vast majority of how we make money is on performance. And the whole the whole topic of fees, I could do a whole podcast about this. If I were to hire a manager myself, I'm probably hiring them because I think they're going to put up decent numbers. If I think they're going right. to put up decent numbers, probably paying a management fee is actually cheaper than the performance fee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we could argue about this stuff. But yeah, we when we did it and we designed things and stuff, I... Um, I tried to say to people that, you know, like, um, because we have different things we have because of regulatory rules, we have, we would be happy to charge a performance fee for everyone, but we can't. So we have things where we have completely a management fee, which is uh, manager account stuff, and then completely a performance fee. Um, I kind of sketched out uh, where I thought it was likely that those two would intersect in terms of the sense of you can do the math and say, well, at this performance level, these two would, which one's more expensive? Right. So obviously if, if performance is really bad, a management fee is way more expensive. If performance is really good. A performance fee is way more expensive. The question is at what point do the two cross? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I didn't think they were radically different structures in terms of like, if you put money in and left it indefinitely with us and stuff, what would you average out and everything? I didn't think they were radically different, but people were much more, um, thought that the performance fee thing was much, much more favorable the management fee thing and one reason for that possibly is that they're comparing it to other things in which hedge fund things have often very high fees and when they're used to seeing management fees often have very low fees in um in like i mean you could be comparing to very diversified mutual funds funds, yeah. yeah things like that and so that could be the difference um so obviously on a comparative basis to other things that are like that charge those kinds of fees the performance fees are way lower than other people's performance fees versus the uh, management fees are high versus other people's management fees. So that may be the reason. Instead of thinking how much I'm going to pay over time, what's most likely. I think that's true for everybody that way, though. Like, if you hear a number, you compare it to other things that also have that number. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, you know, if, if you get homeowner's insurance and you've only had renter's insurance before, you go, oh, wow, that's a lot compared to my renter's insurance or whatever. You don't really think, oh, what is it covering and how much and, and whatever. You know, it's just what is your framework for dealing with that Mm -hmm. you know what can you compare to what do you anchor on um and a lot of people i mean and obviously if you're doing a widely diversified sort of thing having the lowest possible management fee and low tax is very important well that's the only number that matters that doesn't get talked about enough because obviously how do you do like a generalized number but the after tax return right that's what you need so that means what's the lowest after uh, expenses and and taxes i'm having a very low fee but 
high turnover and stuff may not be helpful. Although there there's things you can do, even if you have higher turnover that if they're really good at managing tax things for you, um, could help too. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, you know, cause people are focused on many at that point in what they're doing, they may be focused on like, what's the lowest fee that I can get, I guess. Um, Pro, who knows? Probably you don't want to pick the person with the absolute lowest fee, but you probably don't want to pick the person with the highest fee either. Uh, if you had to figure it out, I'm, I'm guessing. Unless you're doing something totally different. Um, my suggestion with that stuff always has been like, you know, honestly, people asking about it is if you're doing a more general sort of thing, you know, do the, like the index fund thing, really. If you're doing something that's alternative, really different, you know, let's say you want something that's just actually investing in commodities or something. That's the thing to pay a real fee for. It's giving you something very different. Whether or not it's a good thing to do, um, that's where you should save paying real fees for, is for stuff that's very different. For anything that's very close to plain vanilla sort of investing stuff, you're probably better off just picking an index to do with that and then doing completely something different with the other things, you know? Um, yeah. And our fees, by the way, like especially in the fund, I mean, it it's pretty. It's majority of the investors what they're on is actually very cheap, um, but it's just the whole fee conversation. It's an interesting one, and and then there's people that's you know could ask why are you managing outside capital if you are an investor you should be rich you don't need outside capital. I'm like why has anyone in their life done anything on a larger scale? It's because they specialize in something and they go out and want to do it, you know, for other people as well. And I mean, again, to make more money, that's not a secret. It's not like I'm beating around that bush. Someone would comment frequently that, and I'm like, come on the podcast. Let's talk about it. Let's debate in public. (laughs) I'd love to talk Um, to you about it, but yeah, I mean, I think up to a point there, but there is a level at which it's too much money to manage or it's too much, uh, aggravation. Um, having, if, if you don't have the right partners, then you probably would be like, no, I'm, I'm not managing outside money and stuff. It, it, and that's true for everybody. That's, that's true. If that's true for most people assume that, um, what someone's doing in there, you know, let's say you're reading about why someone is picked to do this, uh, some actor picked to do this movie and stuff. It's not necessarily that that's exactly the highest possible payday he could get. There are other factors involved and there are pe- some people he will not work with for any payment, you know, and there is a level at which you make a certain amount of money and you're like, well, I'm not doing the stuff I don't like doing anymore. And you would have, if you didn't have any money. Um, so yeah, people generally will do things that make them the most money within the kind of thing that is what they want to be doing and doesn't cross any lines of what they're like, no, this is not, this is just too much, uh, um, unpleasantness of things I didn't want to do. I mean, Buffett decided at some point, just I'm not doing activism. And that's the reason it wasn't that it, I mean, eventually it turned into something that he could use to a certain extent to be beneficial to him with that reputation. But that just came out of, I don't want to liquidate companies to make money, even if I could make money faster that way because of what happened with Dempster Mill and things like that. Mm -hmm. And also to your point though, about choosing the right type of partners and how Mm -hmm. important that is. I knew that Jeff and I would be successful when we had zero dollars of revenue coming in and we were going to raise capital from an individual and basically every time we kind of came to an agreement it was almost like he just kept moving he or she kept moving the goalpost forward uh-huh. where it was oh i don't want to pay the fee 
I want you to write up a report. Right. I want veto rights. It was like every little thing. And we had zero dollars in assets, zero dollars in revenue on the money right. management side. And we respectfully declined. And because I think if you want to build something that's going to last and you want to be around for 50 years, it's very important to have people that are aligned with you. So yeah. that's, you know, what I try to do is, and, and, but starting the partnership off on the right side where it's like, okay, this makes sense. This is a mutual, um, thing going on between us. That's what makes a good partnership. I think as opposed to somebody getting like the complete upper hand. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if there was ever a situation where it was like, I could run an ETF, I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't be comfortable running something where people could pull their, where the money could be pulled out instantly, basically, or go up by as huge an amount as some do. And the distortions that that causes to how you can manage the money. So something that can be that you have no control over how much it grows or shrinks in terms of the, the, uh, what you need to invest in. I mean, I just want to, I want to do it because just the way that I like to invest in stuff that just, just, just wouldn't work, you know? So yeah, I mean, you like to make as much money as you can from whatever arrangement that you have that you're trying to do within sort of the boundaries of what is enjoyable enough for you to do. Mm-hmm. And I love doing investing things, but there's lots of kinds of investing that I would not love doing and probably not going to do that. Even if you can make a lot more money doing it, um, you know, so a lot of it is, I mean, I think the most important thing is what you do with finding the right people, um, to match up the strategy with the, the right kind of money. Cause most investment things that don't work out well, a lot of reasons why things don't work out well with wall street stuff is a mismatch between the strategy and the the money that's going into it. So, um, and that's very common. So even though we might know in the long run, this kind of strategy works, and this is where you get into things with like quants and stuff, it's more easy to talk about it that way because we know exactly what their strategy is supposed to be and stuff. If you do that and you don't match up the right kind of thinking about the money, then that kind of problem that you're going to have is responsible for a lot of things that can um, overcome just that if this has a higher low fee, it's a lot of the extra costs that can be put on, um, by money coming in and out at the wrong time by unnecessary tax things, like we said, and all that. Um, so matching it up is what's really, really useful. So let's, I'm gonna put you in a hypothetical. If somebody came to you tomorrow and said, here's 10 billion, go invest it. No. Could you digest that? No, can't invest 10 billion. Let's say somebody came to you tomorrow and said, here's a billion. I mean, we can't invest a billion doing what we're doing right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, worldwide and stuff. Yeah, you can you can invest a billion. Yeah, you can invest a billion. Yeah, and I say you can't do ten billion, but who knows? Buffett said that about small amounts and then large amounts and large amounts. But at some point, I think it proved totally true. Um, but it, I think he overcame it for forty years or something. Mm-hmm. You know, out of sixty some doing it. Um, so if anyone has a, a billion I, laying around, give me a call. <laughs> and it depends on how much inflation is and stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, we keep talking about micro, I mean, I think what they defined as micro caps, I don't know, 10 or what, 20 years ago now is how they're still defining as, but it's, yeah. it'll be twice the They've talked about now. modernizing that. It'd be like 1.2 billion or something, right? About it's, the different cap, market cap sizes. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly. Or maybe but, I'm thinking about for a 13F. I'm thinking about for oh, a 13F. Oh, for 13F, yeah. 
100 million going to like 1.2 billion which we would like let me say that that's one of my biggest concerns is 13f i mean the 13f doesn't cover some securities that we would own whether that's foreign or not listed things so you could avoid it for a lot beyond 100 million but you can't avoid it to a billion probably so unless that changes then people will be able to find 13f's and i can go on and see everyone's 13f for things you know yeah but if we were larger but still yeah. held the same positions people wouldn't really be able to take much away from what our current 13f would be i feel like like of like if we were because larger we have, like what would be yeah, on it would there? be even worse it would be than like that. one stock it would be worse than that because yeah it's what happens now with some of these people where i say we have no idea because there it's only showing some of the securities yeah well we have yeah basically it would it wouldn't be a very representative sample what you see in mm -hmm. 13f it would probably be the most the least overlooked stocks it would yeah. be whatever not so overlooked stocks you own which in our whole strategy is overlooked stocks so it would you know um and that's probably what we're seeing when we look at Pabri's stuff in the u.s order because it's probably not much in the u.s mm -hmm. so and everyone like makes a big deal about it and whatever and we don't know how much what percentage of that really is his investment and how much are people doing overseas um yeah so i think it's a big problem with the 13f things yeah um yeah, but you know whatever i mean your your partners your clients would ha get whatever your real result is it would just be there'd be a bunch of people thinking that you're doing something different than you really are mm -hmm. which is the thing especially for those when they include ones 13fs where people are like hedging and trading different things and stuff you could just be seeing part of like a much bigger strategy we don't do things like that but unless they're a longer term long only investor i don't know how representative that 13f is of what they're doing well we talked about that with michael burry's 13f i don't know what you could get away from it i mean sometimes i guess you could see some of his securities but He's kind of well, all over the place. Fast, yeah. usually, it's like so. reading David Tepper's 13F. Yeah. It's just kind of it's in and out, different things. Yeah. A renaissance. My favorite's when you come across like a 13D or 13G, or 13G is what it usually is, mm. of renaissance. And it's yeah. like renaissance technologies. And then by the, I mean, for all you know, they're already out of the position when you're reading the filing. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right, we'll close with this last question. How high debt to EBITDA can you accept? Different levels for different sectors, question mark. Do you ever buy a no-moat business if it's cheap enough? Um, yeah, I could buy a no-moat business if it was cheap enough. Yeah, I'm okay with that idea. Especially because you can diversify over a bunch of them by doing that. Um, basically, is it a net-net? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then... Uh, that's EBITDA levels? How high yeah, is too high? If it's made money in the past, though, I should say that about number two. I, I, cheap enough but never made money, that's too hard for me. But, like, if it's made money in the past and it's really cheap on, like, assets and stuff, yeah, I could buy it. Um, how high does EBITDA... It's, hard, it's really, really hard to say. I mean, look, there's leverage buyout things and stuff. We're going to leverage things six times debt to EBITDA um, and maybe a more generous version of EBITDA than I would use. Um, and they, it mostly works out for them, you know. Now, um, I think it really depends on the business. There are certain businesses where I probably would be okay with a really high debt to EBITDA. Um, and there are others where I wouldn't. In general, I think we've said before, like anything over three times debt to EBITDA 
certainly would get my attention. Anything more than two, I would start to think there's significant debt on this business, you know. And over three, I would think I'm not sure we'll always be able to get banks lending to us in a tough time. I'm not sure we can really borrow more money than we've already borrowed here. Um, but if you have a very, very stable industry, you could do it, you know. And some of the industries we do invest in, or we've talked about things in entertainment and food and whatever branded things, you know, yeah, you, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I probably wouldn't rule it out if I had four times debt to EBITDA. Um, and it was saying, okay, we're going to pay this down or we're going to leave it at this level or whatever. Um, but if it was like rolling up all sorts of other things. I don't know. And also I generally look at cat. I should say, I generally look more at cash flow from operations relative to, um, debt levels and things like that. Because if you were at even just three times debt to EBITDA, but you're just not generating any cash normally, that would worry me a lot more. Um, so sometimes you'll see a business, um, we've talked about NACA before, NACA and Hamilton Beach Brands split up into two different things. Hamilton Beach Brands, since the split, has generated plenty of operating income and would look good by all those things. It doesn't have a ton of debt. It has some debt, but it's, that's not really relevant to this question. But um, if you notice, it hasn't really generated a ton of cash flow from operations because there's such huge working capital needs yeah. a lot of the time in mm -hmm. receivables and inventory, especially seasonal. Whereas NACA, none of that, right? So... In theory, if you had something like NACO, but in a very durable business that you knew wasn't like coal, wasn't in decline that way, then you could have a lot of debt to EBITDA on it. Whereas I would not want to put a lot of debt to EBITDA on a company that has to have very big shifts in inventory and receivables, like a manufacturer that's selling through um, retail stores and stuff like that. So a services business could probably take higher debt to EBITDA if it was very, very stable kinds of services, you know? Um, what would be like that? A pest control, right? I think a pest control business could probably take very high debt to EBITDA. That being said, Rollins. Yep. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of things. Um, yeah. Some very predictable businesses that way. Yeah. And of course, you see it. And I mentioned entertainment and stuff. You've probably seen tons of um, what is it? any gambling things, any hotels, any whatever. A bunch of those things have very high uh, debt to EBITDA things, you know. Um, so. Yeah, it, it would be possible um, that it could be higher than that. I do warn people just in general, though. I think if, you're, if you've got even just more than three times debt to EBITDA, you want to think about it differently. You really do want to think about it like you're kind of investing in an LBO type situation or something. Um, like, do they have things they could sell off if they need to? Are you sure they have access to credit under all these different scenarios, how would they treat you if they ran into these kinds of problems? You don't, cause you don't never, what you never want is, um, let's say management doesn't own a lot of the stock and whatever and things, and there's high debt to EBITDA, if things go badly, they issue a ton of stock at some bad price for you or something. You know, even though you thought that the credit quality was fine and stuff, the difference between you and an LBO, you don't control things there. You're an outside passive investor. So the same levels of, Debt to EBITDA, like I said, like six times or something. That you might feel comfortable with that if you studied the company carefully and you controlled the board. But as an outside investor, you probably are never going to get comfortable with six times debt to EBITDA. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with you both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound to be able to ask questions in the future. 
uh, that we will source for our podcast. If you're going to be in Omaha this year for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting and you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, reach out to me. You could email me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Jeff and I will be there Thursday, April 28th to May 1st, uh, which is Sunday. And then on Saturday, April 30th, uh, come join us at the Willow Oak Asset Management Reception and Investment Panel that's going to be going on um, from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. You, you can sign up for that for free at willowoakfunds.com. Uh, we're looking forward to it. So we'll see you there. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.